Father, we lift up our hearts to you and we thank you that you've given us this opportunity to lift our voices up to you together. I pray, Lord, that as we open your scriptures, that you would open our ears to hear and our heart to appreciate that which you have written. Lord, your word is immutable. It never changes, withers, fails, or fades. It will endure in the shifting sands of history and culture. It will not return unto you void, and it will accomplish that that you send it to do. Lord, it will transform by the renewing of our minds every aspect of our being as you use it by your Spirit's hand to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Your word, Father, we confess as its own testimony affirms both in our experience and in its pages is a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Your word smashes the foundations and the edifices of idols and idolatry, Lord, that have been built on the shifting sands of man's ideas. You tear them down by the power of your spoken word. Your word is a water, Lord Jesus, like water that washes and cleanses and sanctifies. Your word is a sword, Father, that pierces asunder through soul and spirit and divides like a scalpel, joints and marrow, and is able to discern even the thoughts, the intents of the heart. Your word is powerful, Lord Jesus, like seed to reproduce manifold fruit, Lord, exponentially, 30, 60, and 100-fold. Lord, your word endures forever, and your word became flesh and dwelt among us, and it is Jesus Christ, the word of God, to whom we give glory and praise for making this meeting meaningful this morning. It is because of the work of Jesus, the living word on Calvary, and his resurrection and ascension, Lord, that we have the assurance of our own resurrection one day, the assurance of the pardon of our own sins, and the glorious future union and communion with you to look forward to, even as now we celebrate our oneness in Christ through the blood and body of Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray, Lord, that these themes would be etched upon our souls as we go over this precious scripture this morning. Lord, I pray that we would not soon forget, but we would be both hearers and doers. And all that you might be glorified, your church equipped, and the world see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through your preached and lived word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, what a great privilege it is to open up the scriptures together, and I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew 26 with me as we continue in our Matthew series. Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16 which is the narrative section, the account of gospel events that immediately follows the fourth uh, or the fifth, excuse me, great discourse in the book, which we've covered at some length in chapters 24 through 25. On the heels of this message that Christ has delivered, we see something of a transition and the shift in both his instruction to his uh, disciples, his interaction with them, as well as his actions going forth now to embrace his passion, going to Calvary, the cross, resurrection, and ascension. So this is the point in the Gospel of Matthew where all that Jesus has been preparing the disciples for and all history has been anticipating will come now to a point of fulfillment, fruition, a fulcrum, an apex, and a climax. It is a powerful moment indeed. So let us not take it lightly this morning. Stand with me, if you would, for the reading of God's Word, with your Bible again open to Matthew 26, 1 through 16, standing out of reverence for the Word of God. Follow me as I declare God's immutable truth, Matthew 26, 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there should be an uproar among the people. Verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? 
For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let, re- let me uh, remind you of a concept that I've labeled narrative imperative continuity, which might sound a little academic. It simply means this, that the things that Jesus has spoken by way of structured, uh, we've called them discourses, you could say message or sermon, bodies of teaching. What Jesus has spoken by way of structured bodies of teaching in the book of Matthew, we've covered the five major sections so far, is reinforced by the context around it. The events that sovereignly God ordained by His power to occur, to occur before and after and then to be recorded, such as they are in the book of Matthew, are done absolutely on purpose to reinforce, to illustrate, to illumine, to shine light on, and to underscore the, and highlight the power and the authority of what He has spoken. We have found this time and again in the gospel. And I'm sure as many as we covered, I've missed at least as many of those connections. With that in mind, I would encourage you in your own study. The the Gospels can sometimes be challenging, but I would challenge you. In your study of the Gospel, look for those connections between Christ walking on the water and what He has just declared Himself to be to His disciples. Look for the connections of His authority declared in the constitution of the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount, and then see in chapter 8 how His authority is then demonstrated by power over demons, sickness, the Gentile and Jewish distinction, and even sin itself as He gives healing and forgiveness in His own name by His own authority. These connections will reinforce the continuity of the Scriptures to us, and we will be able to demonstrate by our testimony and affections to the world that the Bible is not some loosely bound anthology of random, maybe historical events. We're not sure after all. We can't corroborate them in the archaeological record the way pagan man likes to think. And as we begin to appreciate and then to display to others the the divine connections and the fingerprint of divine inspiration that the Bible has, it will not only increase our faith, but it will increase our testimony. To draw to the blind, the spiritually blind man's attention the power of God to reveal Himself in the pages of Scripture in a way no other book ever has and no other book ever will. Through the course of our Matthew study, we have seen numerous occasions where these types of teaching blocks that I just mentioned to you are mutually reinforced and vice versa with the immediate narrative that follows them. This, again, narrative imperative continuity. Our text today, combined with the final discourse of Matthew, chapters 24 and 25, will demonstrate as much, I trust, again. And so let us look where this phenomenon today is seen in our text, Matthew 26, 1 through 16. This moment in the text is also significant, that is, Matthew 26, in that it signals a shift in the focus of Jesus' earthly, redemptive ministry. Here we see the events of Calvary begin to unfold. The events of Calvary, Jesus going to the cross, securing redemption, humbling himself, going as was prophesied in Isaiah, like a sheep, without a sound, led to the slaughter to fulfill the will of the Father to crush him. In this section, John Gill says of this portion of Scripture, quote, of Christ, having finished his prophetic and being about to enter his priestly office, he gives his disciples some intimations of its near approach. Again, having finished his prophetic, that is, Christ has finished in one sense his prophetic ministry, and now there's a new emphasis in his ministry about to bring a, about to bring a, or he's a, being about to enter into his priestly office, 
that is the giving of his own flesh as a sacrifice for our sins, he, that is Christ, gives his disciples some intimations of this near approach. He prepares them for this event by again prophesying that it will occur and also demonstrating in the sovereign order of the events that happen some of its weight and meaning. There is a striking change of tone, therefore, in the, uh, in, in the text. In fact, it might come as a shock and a surprise to the unenlightened observer. How do we go from this unequivocal demonstration of power and authority where the Son of Man comes in glory? Matthew 25, 31, His angels with Him. He sits on His glorious throne. And before Him who has gathered all the nations the apex of human authority, the high watermark of influence that humans collectively could boast, they all stand before Him. They all bow before Him. They all receive the decree as to where, what their destiny will be, either hell or heaven, as one by one the individuals throughout history, everyone who has ever lived, be they nation or person, stand before the King of Kings, Jesus Christ our Lord, and are separated by His sovereign hand, judicially, ethically, sheep from goats, right and left, and to those whom His favor has shined upon through the gospel they hear, come you who are blessed by my Father to inherit the kingdom. That picture of sovereignty, of power, of glory, of uh, His seat of judgment, and His uh, asserting of authority over all creation and anyone who has ever lived suddenly changes. It suddenly changes to one of brokenness, self-giving, sacrifice, and humility. The record shifts from a declaration of absolute universal triumph of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. He is shown to be, in Matthew 25, the cosmic judge, if you will, of all the universe, proclaiming and ordaining the destiny of eternal souls. But suddenly, we see Him revealed in chapter 26 in humility. The humility of subjecting himself, submitting himself to the most shameful, crushing, painful, horrific death that anyone could ever imagine. This is the striking reality of the context of our verses today. What can we learn from these elements? Here's a heading for you. Three illuminating elements in the narrative context. Three illuminating elements. So elements that shine light on the, or on the passage as a whole in the context of Matthew 26. I want to focus on three. First, to build on what I've just described, the transition in Christ's ministry. How is the element of transition that is recorded from Matthew 25 to 26, how does that shed light on the gospel? Secondly, contrast. We see in the text today a vast difference between settings and individuals, characters in the story, and certain transactions that take place. Thirdly, an illuminating element will be illustrations or applications. We'll submit to you that there are three ways we could see the three parables applied from Matthew 25. The parable of the wise and foolish virgins, the parable of the talents, and uh, not so much a parable, uh, technically speaking, but the picture, the revelation of the separation of the sheep and the goats those three passages in Matthew 25, I'll submit to you, are illustrated and, and there's some application in our text today. So number one, transition. The illuminating element in the narrative context of transition teaches us at least the following, I submit to you. First of all, the multiple offices of Jesus Christ are highlighted by this transition that I laid out for you. This stark difference between the glory of God revealed as the Son of Man and Judge to the humiliation of Christ in His priestly self-giving, His priestly self-offering is a powerful transition. And the reason it is not contradictory, the reason that it is, it is not self-defeating, the reason that it does not show that the Bible is disconnected or discontinuous in any way is because of the multi-offices of Christ. You've heard them, prophet, priest, and king. Christ functions as prophet when he declares in Matthew 26. You know that after two days, verse 2, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Christ functions as king as we see him ruling and reigning, do we not? In verse 34, Matthew 25, then the king, who's Christ speaking of? 
himself, son of man, ruling from his throne, the glorious throne with the angels, the angelos, the messenger surrounding him. As he's come on, his clouds, on the clouds of glory, this Daniel 7 fulfillment. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you're blessed by my father. You see him ruling as the sovereign authority over all of the universe in this instance and over everyone who's ever lived. And he has the power to determine the fate of his subjects according to his law, the sovereign subjects, realm and law, those elements of kingdom are, uh, are central to his authority. And we see them here adjudicated in his office as son of man and king. Inherit the kingdom prepared before you. This king has the authority to give a kingdom because he is, yes, its king prepared before you from the foundation of the world. But then we have priest, we have prophet, we have king, and we have priest. And it is at this moment in the text that the priestly work of Christ begins to be highlighted. And this is most stunning of all to the unsuspecting ear because it's easy for us to imagine a sovereign, a God who... Rules and reigns with ultimate authority, right? Authority is an inescapable concept. Uh, even in the experience of fallen and obstinate and rebellious man, we can't get away from it. Everyone understands to some degree what it's like to be accountable to authority. Even if they rail against it in their rebellion, there are times when against their very will they have to submit when the cuffs are slapped on, where the hauled away to jail when they stand before a court, when they become subject to a new policy that's delivered by the legislature in the nation in which they live. So it's easy in one sense for us to imagine a sovereign, a being, a divine who has rule and reign over our lives. We can also understand to some degree the idea of prophet. After all, everyone knows or we can admit that there are some who are wiser than others and we appeal to experts and we look even in our culture to those who we think their credentials give them a greater ability to speak with authority on a certain matter or another. Even in academia or science or different areas of human interest and the humanities, these things are quite familiar to us. But what is most unfamiliar in our experience, in our fallen state, is the idea that this sovereign, that this Lord of all, that this prophet, that this one who holds the future destiny of all the world in his hands would become a man and dwell among us. And in so doing, become the perfect mediator between us and a holy God and not only intercede as our high priest, but to offer himself, his very body and blood as our sacrifice. And this explains the transition in the text. How in one instance, we go in what would appear at first glance to be almost a bipolar manner from this powerful assertion of authority to this extreme humility and self-giving. Christ's threefold offices are clearly seen in the full scope of His ministry. At different points in the gospel, there's a shift in emphasis between them. In this passage over here, He's emphasizing His office as prophet. In this passage over here, His priestly work is featured. In this passage over there, He's demonstrating His authority as King. He has just expounded that as Christ, his, king, his kingship in Matthew 25. And this authority has been building to a crescendo in the text of we, as we studied it of late. You can't get any higher than the revelation of Daniel 7 fulfilled in Christ. As we read, the Son of Man will come in his glory with the angels surrounding him, sitting on his glorious throne, and then judging all the world according to his standards that he himself has ordained and will see through. This Son of Man imagery fulfills, again, the imagery of old, the prophets who spoke of a Messiah King who would come, who would receive a kingdom from the Ancient of Days. He would come in His glory, sit on His glorious throne, and then the King would say these things. He would prophesy, He would speak, and He would adjudicate His law. And now, once again, we see in the text, or as I briefly mentioned to you, that on the heels of this demonstration of his kingship, he's also speaking prophetically. Let, re, let me remind you of several other times Christ has prophesied his own death. It is not so much a surprise to us that Christ would become subject to the authorities and for us to know that he did so willingly and not by the overpowering influence of these empirical forces or these domineering tyrants when we see that he himself prophesied these very events would take place. 
Not only did he say so just two days before the event occurred in 26-2, someone might think, well, he probably saw the writing on the wall, the unbeliever might speculate. But listen in Matthew 16:21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You see how foreign this thought was to his disciples. In this instance, when Peter reacts negatively to this revelation, he says, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And then the strongest of rebukes we hear in verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, that is, Christ turned and said to the disciple, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And here we have a clue. We have directly from the Lord himself that the things of God are the things that pertain to the gospel, the things that explain why it makes sense that Christ would go to the cross would suffer at the hands of sinful men, and in so doing, become the propitiation of our sins. These are the things of God. Too often we are distracted, clouded, confused by the things of man. But the Bible itself sets the record straight, does it not? Think of Matthew chapter 10. This is a moment where an allusion to Christ's own work on Calvary was uh, given in the context of his preaching again. In Matthew 10, 38, Jesus has said, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Matthew 17, again, as we retrace the steps of Christ's proclamation in the gospel, we see that to those who had ears to hear it would come as no surprise that he was going to Calvary. 17, 22, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Here he uses this favorite title for himself, the Son of Man, but he also includes prophetically his plight in the near future in his priestly office where he would go to Calvary, to the cross, to be crucified for you and for me. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, verse 23, and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. We go on to touch on one more prophecy in Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. Again, this is the record of Christ declaring what will happen. He is prophesying his priestly work as he declares as much, fulfilling his office as prophet. 2017, and Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the twelve disciples aside and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And again, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and He will be raised on the third day. With that text fresh in your mind, consider again our primary text this morning, Matthew 26, 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when we put two and two together in the revelation of the Lord in his word, and combined with the understanding that the Holy Spirit gives, it is no longer mysterious to us when we read in the apostolic record, later in Acts 4, 27, once the disciples had put the dots together, this testimony, verse 25. David, the servant of the Lord, is quoted. It's identified that he's speaking by the Holy Spirit when he said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Listen, verse 27. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This transition in the record proves to us that these events are by the sovereign hand of God. 
they also demonstrate to us the multiple offices of Christ. And in the apostolic record, again, this is affirmed and reaffirmed. We just read in Acts 4 one example. Let me draw to your attention one more before we move on to our next point in Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, there is what is called the Carmen Christian Latin. It means the hymn to Christ. Listen to the three stages of Christology that we have. His prior glory, His humiliation, and His exaltation. One of these great central kingpin verses. be good even to memorize or passages. Have this mind, Philippians 2.5, Among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, that's His humiliation, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In a very real sense, The path to Matthew 25 goes through Matthew 26. Christ will receive His kingdom. He will rule on His sovereign throne with authority when He humbles Himself, goes to the cross, when He demonstrates complete submission to the will of the Father and completes to the absolute nth degree every necessary condition for redemption. Then he will ascend, will receive his kingdom, and Matthew 25 will be a forever reality. Even as Christ himself in these prophetic glimpses, even as he is under the crushing weight of false accusation, unjust trial, and condemnation to execution, he says things like we've touched on many times, Matthew 26, 64. Jesus said to him, speaking to the false authorities, the high priest and company. You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus knows that the path through the cross is to exaltation, and it is to an elevated position of sovereign authority that will cause all nations, every tribe, every tongue, anyone who has ever lived to either quake in terror before him or to lift up their praises in awestruck worship forever. This is what is highlighted in the text today. This is the path of God's sovereign ordination, where Christ by His own power gives His life and takes it up again, that He might rule and reign over death and sin itself and any other authority, principality, and power. Secondly, under transition, there is a a connection The transition point in the gospel corresponds to the Old Testament typology prefigured in the feast of Passover. This transition in Matthew 26, we read again in verse 1, Jesus had finished all these sayings. He said to his disciples, verse 2, You know now, or you know that after two days, the Passover is coming. Highlight Passover in your mind. That is key. In two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. What is the significance of Passover in the events? What contextual illumination, if you will, does this feast shed on? What kind of light does it spill onto the work of Christ at this moment in His ministry? To help us understand, let's go to Exodus 12. There are certain key moments, milestones in redemptive history that are often referred to throughout the course of the biblical record to remind us of the main ideas, the themes that are threaded through all of Scripture. One of them, of course, is recorded in Exodus chapter 12, and this is the ordination of the Feast of Passover upon the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. This is not mere provision to deliver them from tyranny and slavery at that particular time, But this is a feast, a memorial, a commemoration. It is revelation for ages and ages. Let's read in verse 24. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves. Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill 
the Passover lamb. Let me flash back very quickly. You know that after two days, 26-2 Matthew, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Again, Exodus 12, 21, 22, or, uh, 21, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out the door of this house until morning. 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever, forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He has passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Jesus Christ is in mere days going to be the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover such that the judgment of God will pass over the houses of the people so that one day and through the course of history when sheep and goats are separated, there are any sheep in the first place. In order for there to be any sheep, that is those of us who can hear from Him enter into the inheritance of a kingdom prepared before you, there must be an eternal fulfillment of the Passover sacrifice. This is what was going on. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming. That is, after Christ has hung on the cross, bled and died for sinners, the Passover has come. The once-for-all sacrifice is now established in time so that the judgment of God will forever Pass over all who are in Him. Why? Because the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. As we read these words, the rest of the Gospels echo in our mind, do they not? Think of John 1.29. When John the Baptist exclaims upon his eyes laying sight to Jesus Christ as Lord, he says what? Uh, it's nice to meet you. My name is John the Baptist. I hope you see I've done a good job for you. And uh, no. He confesses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, welling up within him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the power of this moment. Now we can understand why it is accompanied by what would appear to the human eye as a low point for the Messiah. It was a low point by God's sovereign ordination and it must happen in order for the angel of death, to pass over our lives as it were. The Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be delivered. And at this transition point in history, the forever fulfillment of the Passover is established. Third transition, and this is just reiterating, building on a little bit of what we've talked about already, the humiliation of Christ. We begin to see that Christ lays aside for a moment the authority that he intrinsically owns. And he takes on the crushing burden of his lonely appointment. And it descends upon him like a weight that causes him to gasp out, if there was any way for me to be relieved from this, Father, take the cup. In, in Gethsemane, we read of this as the chapter wears on in verse 36. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. You know the story. The disciples are not faithfully at his side. They're not contending in prayer with him. They fall asleep while he cries in verse 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, for a second time, he went and prayed. Verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 45, he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, 
the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, see my betrayer is at hand. At this moment of Christ's humiliation, in the text, we can feel, as we let the Holy Spirit speak to us through its words, the crushing burden of utter alienation and loneliness that Christ was taking on for us. My mom and I were in a conversation this week and she mentioned before she knew Christ, from time to time, all of the distractions of life's uh, vain and frivolous pursuits would be swept aside from her mind for a moment and she would feel this suffocating, nauseating, claustrophobic sense of absolute abandonment, alienation, and loneliness. She felt that her relationships were merely superficial, even in her family and her friends. But there was come a point in her life where she would stand on the threshold of death and no one could cross it with her. She would be utterly alone. In the scriptures, the Bible talks about communion and union with Christ. That is a reconnection such that nothing could ever substitute or any, any, come anywhere close to the relationship that is restored in Christ. If you are in Christ today, know that it is because Christ bore that alienation, that suffocating, claustrophobic, terrifying sense of utter loneliness and alienation. He did it in these moments, in His humiliation. And He did it to bear the sin and or to bear the judgment that your sin deserved. And I believe it's in 1 Corinthians 13, towards the end of what we call the love chapter sometimes, the apostle exclaims the joy of knowing Him as I have been known. He's celebrating that communion, that union in Christ, that oneness, the fact that He knows when He gives His life, when He finally comes to the end of His life and gives up the ghost, that He will not cross that threshold without an advocate. But as he steps before the great white throne of judgment, as it were, before the Son of Man who comes in his glory with angels around him sitting on his glorious throne, he will rub his shoulders and feel the white robes of Christ's righteousness purchased by the shed blood of the Son of Man on Calvary because of these moments that we read of in Matthew 26. These are the illuminating elements in the narrative context of Matthew 26. This transition time is so important. And as we see these elements, may we be reminded of their importance to our own salvation. Secondly, this morning, major point, illuminating elements in the narrative context. Notice the contrast, the differences in three things, three simple things in our, in our short snippet of events today. Number one, locations. Number two, preparations. And three, transactions. I want to point out to you two different houses, as it were, two different locations. Notice again, let's read more closely in verse 3. Where are the chief priests and elders when, uh, when these events are taking place? It says, then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the pla- uh, palace, excuse me, they gather, gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, four, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. You can imagine this picture, can't you, in your mind? The most important and influential and powerful men of that society. uh, Represented by two categories. The priestly order, Caiaphas, high priest. And also the uh, elders, as it were. Chief priests and elders. Elders would be the civil magistrates, those who have judicial authority over the uh, society, as it were, over the nation of Israel. Leaders among the people. Chief priests, those who have ecclesiastical or church authority, those who can uh, permit or forbid entry into the temple and uh, facilitate the sacrifices on behalf of the people and so on. These are the two categories of individuals that huddle together and they whisper and connive and they scheme. And they're coming up with a way that they think they can stealthily kill. They plot to arrest Jesus when he is least suspecting, sneak up on him and remove this threat of their own power from their midst. But let's not do it during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Let's wait for that perfect moment. Where are they doing this? They're doing this in a palace, 
a place of prestige, a place uh, that's impressive to the eye of man. They're doing it in one of those locations where mankind recognizes that that is where the, the king resides or those who hold sway over my fate or that I must look to to govern myself. This is the palace. Where is Christ? Meanwhile, notice the contrast in location. Meanwhile, verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Isn't that interesting? At, at more or less the same time, you have Caiaphas and company, the rulers of this world, gathered in a palace to scheme against the Lord of glory. Meanwhile, you have the sovereign of the universe residing in the house of Simon the leper. You have Jesus at Bethany. The name Bethany itself actually means house, house of affliction, house of pain, house of depression, house of misery. No wonder why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 22, that the gospel comes as a surprise to the unbelieving ear. It is foolishness to the Greek who seeks for wisdom and to be impressed by its great revelation of profound truths that really strike the chord of their intellectual uh, you know, soul. To the Jew, they seek signs and spectacular you know, manifestations according to their preconceived notions of what Messiah would do and ought to be. But in both cases, the preaching of the cross, the humiliation of the God of the universe who took on flesh and became man to be our sacrifice in our stead for our sins, to be crucified and to take residence in the house of a leper on the precipice of his work that will change all of history comes as complete foolishness. But to those whose eyes are open to its truth, it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe and they are transformed by it. When we look in Leviticus 14, we see even more of the significance of the difference between the palace of the high priest and where Jesus has taken up residence before he goes to the cross. In Leviticus 14, verses 43 through 47, we read the following. If the disease, this is the uh, section in the law of the disease or the leprous home. If the disease breaks out again in the house, after he has taken out the stones and scraped the house and plastered it, then the priest shall go and look. And if the disease has spread in the house, it is a persistent leprous disease in that house. It is unclean. And he shall break down the house, its stones and timber, and all the plaster of that house. And he shall carry them out of the city to an unclean place. Verse 46. Moreover, whoever enters the house while it is shut up shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever sleeps in the house shall wash his clothes, and whoever eats in the house shall wash his clothes, and so on and so forth. Given this passage from the law, how many people do you think would touch the house of a leper with a 10-foot pole? It would sooner be destroyed by the priestly class than ever be a fitting habitation for the Lord of glory. Yet in a town called the house of misery, and in a residence of Simon the leper, we have Jesus Christ, the sovereign of all glory, talking with the woman who has an alabaster flask, who is about to anoint him, communicating with his disciples, and showing his condescension and the utmost of humility. I presume Simon the leper was healed by the touch of Jesus Christ. I presume he was a trophy of the sovereign power of God to intervene and to wipe away that leprous disease. There was a time when leprosy had to be cleansed in a temporal way by removing that individual from the communion of God's people, but those times had changed. Because the one who had power to resurrect the soul and to cleanse the body had touched Simon the leper, no doubt, and his house and his body were clean. This is a powerful juxtaposition. Man seeks authority and security and assurance and power and hope and salvation for the future and the palaces of the rich and the powerful. And he feels as the polished blocks of marble rise higher into the sky that he can assure with some kind of Babel-inspired certainty that his future is secure. But Jesus Christ will not be found there. He will be found in the heart of one who is willing to embrace his sorrows and sufferings. 
who is willing to commune with those who are of low estate, who recognizes their own poverty of soul. He will be found among those who when they see the hungry, they give them food, who when they see the thirsty, they give them drink, who can relate to the stranger and welcome him, provide clothes for those who need it, visit the sick and those who are in prison, because they relate to the sufferings of their Lord. And they know that this brief passage in this life is but a, but a breath, and they will soon give way to the true palace. No use building a facade now, a counterfeit now, that is nothing but an idol before His glory. Endure what He has called you to, saint, and one day you will be elevated with Him. You will be glorified with Him. Contrast of location. Secondly, there's a contrast of preparation. The elders and the chief priests are preparing for something, and there's also preparation referred to in the next event. Again, what are they preparing for? They plot, they're plotting together in order to arrest Jesus to stealth, by stealth and kill him. They're doing so, you know, working around the feast days and so on. They are preparing to eliminate this threat to their own power and this assault to their own pride in Christ himself. That's what they're preparing for. Meanwhile, other preparations are going on in Bethany. In verse 7, a woman came to him, to Jesus, with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it for what? To prepare me for burial. In pouring this ointment, verse 12, on my body she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Two things are going on, two meetings are going on, more or less at the same time. Again, Caiaphas and company, they're planning, they're preparing, they're plotting to arrest and to kill Jesus Christ. This happens through the course of the chapter. Their plans seem to come to fruition, but indeed we find that they are God's plans. The nefarious intentions are eventually fully on their sleeve as they seek false witnesses to condemn the Christ. Meanwhile, meanwhile, verses 7 through 12, at great personal cost, this woman is pouring out her fortunes on her Savior, preparing Him for burial in the most honorable way. And it is staggering and shocking to the unenlightened eye. A year's worth of wages, we are told, in John chapter 12, is being poured out on Jesus. She is preparing Him for burial, He says. She understands something that neither the disciples nor the religious rulers had any clue of at this particular time that the most worthy cause she could give her life and her fortunes and her whole self too was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without the events that will soon transpire, she has nothing. And she demonstrates this as she pours out her sacrifice and offering, even in this material, symbolic, significant picture, as the alabaster flask is emptied on our Savior. This is the kind of preparation that has meaning and merit. This is the kind of preparation that illustrates what Jesus had said in Matthew 25. We'll touch on it in a moment. Thirdly, under contrast, notice a difference in transactions. We've just read a little bit of the story of the woman with the flask, but there's more specifics, as I mentioned, in John chapter 12. In John 12, we find her name is Mary. We find the offending disciple is Disciples are represented by Judas himself. Mary, therefore, verse 3, John 12, 3, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? 
and given to the poor. He said this, listen, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Back in Matthew 26, so this is a transaction, if you will. This woman exchanges her alabaster flask for the gospel promise that her Savior will take good care of her. She wants to worship him and honor him in this way. Meanwhile, another transaction is just about to take place. We find this in our text today, 26, 14 and 15 and 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Here is the difference. One woman was willing to pour out 300 denarii on her Savior, only that she might be in good relationship with Him. And then there was the betrayer who sought to exploit the only man who could save his soul to sell him, to betray him for 30 measly pieces of silver, which would eventually be used to buy a piece of worthless land. That would become a byword, and he himself, the man who committed this atrocity, the man of perdition, would go out and remorsefully hang himself, but repentance would not be found for him. What a contrast. What a contrast. You see, our means and our material wealth is involved in this illustration, but it's simply significant of something deeper on the heart level. Do we exploit the Lord for our own ends and means, or do we give ourselves in service of his great name? Are we more enthralled and compelled to worship him because of his glory? Or do we see some opportunity for self-betterment, self-worth to advance ourselves at the cost of his name, at the cost of his fame and glory? This is the difference that's illustrated here. And the, this contextual illumination provides elements to bring that sharp distinction to bear. Remember, we'll make this point in closing this morning. We're starting to see a few examples of sheep separated from goats. That brings up our closing point this morning, illustrations and application. Most briefly today, as we look at what we've just discovered and looked at closely in the text, we do see illustrations and applications I submit to you of what Jesus Jesus had declared in his parables and in his teaching before. Remember, we've covered it at length, the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the uh, prophecy of final judgment, as it were. And these three examples consider oil, talents, and sheep and goats to represent them. How does our text today contextually illuminate those parables and that teaching? How is this section illustrated and applied in the immediate context? Well, first of all, consider oil. Who is the wise virgin in the story that we've read today? Well, the wise virgin, no doubt, was Mary herself who poured out this expensive ointment, this oil, on the Savior. In so doing, this selfless giving, this worship, this awe and abandonment, this loving exchange, this connection and relationship to Jesus Christ, whom she saw as her only hope in all of life, in both now and into the eternal future, What was she doing? She was being like the ten virgins who were wise, was she not? Who took their lamps with oil and wicks trimmed. And when the doors were finally shut and things came to a head, the Messiah was ascended. She found herself in His good presence, fellowshipping with Him. But those who came late and who said, oh, like, uh, like Judas, oh, I, you know, I, I, I'm so sorry for what I did and just mere remorse, but not a sorrow that leads to repentance, but an earthly sorrow that leads to anguish, runs out and hangs himself. Was his own death enough to satisfy his sins? Was the suicide of Judas enough to pay for his betrayal of the Son of Man, of Jesus Christ? No. The suicide of Judas could pay for nothing. It was just a mere fraction of the judgment his sin deserved. Ultimately, 
He is thrown into the lake of perdition with all unrepentant sinners. Jesus' death. He should have prepared him for burial with the purse. He should have prepared himself or he should have humbled himself and received the death of Jesus Christ as his only hope of salvation. So we see that the oil here of the virgins who are wise and steward what is given to them well is demonstrated by the woman who pours out her great gift and fortunes on the Savior. Secondly, talents. How's the parable of the talents illustrated in these texts? Well, who is the faithful investor as measured by the material wealth in this passage? Again, it might seem a little counterintuitive at first glance, but Mary, again, as she poured herself out for her Savior, reminds us of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, when he said, I am gladly, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. He identified with the value of sacrifice because he identified with Christ as his sacrifice. And so did Mary with her alabaster flask. And finally, illustration and application of what we studied of late. Sheep and goats, is the separation not more clear? You see from the uh, undiscerning eye to the undiscerning eye, the chief priests and the elders, they were most qualified to be in the good graces and favor of the Lord, were they not? I mean, after all, they came from a special and specific lineage that gave them access into the temple. They were the ones who could bring this, make the sacrifices, plead for the people that had entrance, that had all of the specifics of the cultural and ceremonial law down pat so that they knew exactly how to approach the Lord. Wouldn't it seem that these would be sheep? Certainly, wouldn't they? And, uh, you know, those who are outside the temple, maybe a leper, maybe the epileptic and the paralytic and those of the Decapolis region, the outcasts in these regions uh, who were, you know, couldn't come anywhere close to the temple because they were rendered either ethnically or ceremonially unclean. They would think, oh, I'm a goat, I'm a goat, certainly. But no, in the text today, we see something else is the case. Those who find themselves by their own pride and self-ambition to, to be justified, find that they are not justified at all, but self-justification only heaps up more debt against their account, and they plot together and get, uh, instead against the glory of the Lord and prove themselves as goats. Meanwhile, in another house, on the other side of town, as it were, in a place called the house of misery, in the house of Simon the leper, the once unclean man, we find a woman pouring out an alabaster flask. And in this simple and humble and lowly abode, and in this exchange, we see where the sheep have gathered. They are the ones who find assurance and security in Christ, knowing their own frailty and weakness, and they follow him with simple trust and simple abandon. If the shepherd leads them through the wilderness, they trust that he will find greener pastures somewhere. They don't abandon him turning to the right or to the left because they find greener pastures. The rod and staff of their sovereign is more comforting to them than the promise of immediate water and food, to use another analogy. They find themselves as uh, sheep who have become like little children, like, Ma like uh, Matthew tells us in chapter 18, for such is the kingdom of God. Again, and finally, those who thought themselves most likely to secure God's favor conspired to kill Jesus while the household of the leper is graced with the presence of their Savior and King of kings, who calls to all who are sheep, to all who hear his voice, to all who have received his gospel, to all who trust his death to pay for their sins, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for the tender reassurance that your word gives us for those who are in you today. Lord, we pray, Father, that as this word touches our ears, that it would transform us and renew us so that we, Lord, will be found more faithfully serving you, testifying to the power that saves. Work and root out in us, Lord, the pride that easily besets, Lord, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life that so often trips us up. Remind us, Lord, that we are nothing but cleansed lepers if it wasn't for the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, shed for our sins, whose blood was shed for our sins. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen and equip us to appreciate and understand more of the glorious connections of your word as we read. 
And also, Lord, give us grace to shine forth to a world of the dying, the lost, and the unregenerate, Lord. And let us shine for them the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord, as you take this unlikely band, Lord, and use us for your glory and namesake. We thank you for this day that you have made. We rejoice and are glad in it. We thank you most of all for our great salvation. We, may we never take it for granted. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.